This is OTB AM. That's a lot of nonsense because he's English. He's led Liverpool to a Champions League and he's led him to a Premiership title for the first time in 30 years. It's because he's English. That is outrageous to say that. Well, if you're looking for an headline, then there you go. That's it. It's <laughs> <laughs> all that nonsense. OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show, weekdays from 7.30 AM, only on OTB Sports Radio. Live 24-7 on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. Oh, the shape that will get. You've got all the fans there. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicio, they'd probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions are anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you, this And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33. The football happy hour here in Off the Ball. 11 games, no wins for Stephen Kenny as we close off another international window. I've experienced a lot in my life. I find Kenny said, I feel really strong. It doesn't hurt me because I don't care. I know what I'm doing. I'm very clear in what I'm doing. I have real clarity in what I'm trying to implement. And I don't care what anyone says. I'm very clear what I want to do. And it's irrelevant what other people think, to be honest with you. I wrote a piece on the Off The Ball website during the week, if you want to check it out. What Kenny is trying to achieve here is not going to be fixed in 10 games. He has to try to change a mindset that has been in Irish football for 30 plus years. He's up against it and he is blooding new players. Gavin Buzunu, Darrow Shea, Ryan Manning, Josh Cullen, jo- Jason Malumbi, Adam Ida, Aaron Conley all have less than 10 caps for Ireland. If we don't play them now, they will still have less than 10 caps for Ireland come the next campaign. Now is the time to be doing what Stephen Kenny is doing. But Kenny is also up against 30 years of neglect from the FEI. And he's not going to be the man who's going to be in charge of fixing all of the problems in Irish football. And there are a lot of issues from the League of Ireland, which has been neglected and pushed aside by the FAI for too long now, to the development of players which has slowed down, which is also going to suffer because of Brexit, to the difficulty in blooding new coaches because of the price in comparison to other countries to multiple other areas in which Irish football has been let down by the people in charge over the last 30 years. Stephen Kenny cannot fix all of these, but he is trying to make a start with the national team. But those areas are places that we do need to fix. And to that end, we need to start looking at what other countries did. And one of those countries is Iceland. In 2010, Iceland were ranked 112th in the FIFA World Rankings. Today, they are ranked 46th. The Iceland population, 350,000 for the entire island of Iceland. So how did they do it? Well, I am joined on the line by Dathi Rafson, Head of Football Development at HK, now to discuss all this and discuss where Ireland could potentially learn from Iceland in how to develop their football and get out of this doldrums that we're in. Dathi, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you. So 
as I said, Irish football is in a bit of a mess at the minute and we don't really know how to get out of it. In terms of Iceland, can we just get a little bit of background on the football structure in the country? What are the leagues like? Are the leagues fully professional? How many leagues are there and who are the best teams? Yeah, so there's um, uh, the league system in Iceland is that there's uh, three leagues uh, of uh, 12 teams, uh, 12 to 10 teams. And then there's a fourth league that is um, sort of, you know, like um, you could have teams that are quite serious and some not so serious at, at, at the bottom league. So there's a league structure and, um, and if you want to have a place to play in Iceland, there's plenty of teams to do it in. Um, and every town and uh, township has a has a team, uh, but the top league is uh, twelve teams at the moment, and uh, they play a double round, and they're now thinking about doing a, adding a third round. Uh, obviously, because of the weather and the winter, and uh, then our season is quite short. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're trying actually to make it longer. Uh, by uh, playing more on artificial pitches indoors and uh, also just uh, yeah try to stress the schedule any way you can uh, they but but normally the season goes from the end of April until like middle or beginning of October mm-hmm. and um, I think the only way to get it longer would be for all the teams to have artificial turf which at the moment maybe 60 70 percent of the teams do have Okay. And in terms of those 12 teams in the top tier, are they all fully professional or are there some semi-pro teams as well? So by definition, they were, Iceland is an amateur league, yet uh, if you're in, in the top one, top league at least and, and also in, in the second league, you know, uh, then you would, be, you would be getting a salary. And there are professional players in the league, uh, fully professional but there's also, you know, people who are combining football with their studies or with, you know, a, a, another job. Mm-hmm. But it's getting more and more demands on it being professional, and uh, so there's a big push on the clubs to, you know, go go fully professional, and it's getting their baby steps. But obviously, the economics of it is are are, are quite difficult, you know, because running a fully professional club is a is a big uh, task, you know, you need a lot of investment and uh, and the club structure here is quite unusual because uh, in most other countries that I, I, I at least know of, there's an owner, if, if not actually a business or, or a single owner, then there's, a, then there's a, you know, some sort of ownership structure. But in Iceland, there's no clear maybe owner of the clubs because the clubs are all uh, their heritage is community-based, mm-hmm. so even the top league, uh, there's there's no single owner. You couldn't get a Robin, Roman Abramovich in, into Iceland. Okay. Uh, the structure doesn't allow for it. <clears throat> so the so actually the clubs are owned by the community. I can go to my local clubs. I can basically go to almost any club and participate in their annual meeting, and you know have a vote on who's on the board and normally mm. on the board and uh, you know there it's volunteers it's people from the community but uh, but the operational side you know they're they're fully professionals the coaches are professional many of the players are prof- professional and semi-professional it's getting there slightly mm. and in terms of 
exporting players. So Ireland obviously is much closer geographically to England. So naturally in the past, it has been Irish players that went over, but now of course everybody can travel and play in these countries. So it's becoming more and more difficult for the Irish players to in, in the past, we would be exporting them to Manchester United, to Chelsea, to the top teams. And now it is the lower ebb Premier League sides and championship sides in terms of exporting Icelandic players is it seen as a positive or a negative is it something that you would like to see the players go to these top leagues or are you is the country trying to encourage them to stay in the league and stay in the country so there are some there are some people who want to keep them for a bit longer because um, you could say that you know there's so, there's a few different ways to go professional in Europe. Um, it's quite common for 16-year-old boys, 17-year-old boys to get contracts with academy teams in Europe. And quite a lot of them actually do. And uh, another route for players to go pro is to actually get into the first team, have a two, three good seasons, and then you're transferred abroad. And the third and probably not so common way is to have a late development around the age of 24 to 27, uh, do good and get a chance. So these mm -hmm. are like the three maybe pathways that you could see. Some people want to keep the guys longer than for them to leave at 16 or 17. I don't think there's any magic formula to it. We need to have all of these three different um, pipelines to go. And uh, for example, in our current national team, the, the one that's, you know, coming to the end of their careers, the best players all went when they were seven, 16, 17. Uh, Aaron Gunnarsson, he, he went to Holland, 16 years old. Uh, Gilbert Sigurdsson went to Reading. Colbert Sigurdsson, he, he went to Holland. So they, they were all quite young when they, when they went abroad. All, all, all of our best marquee players. Maybe the, maybe the, um, Maybe the one exception would be Finn Boson, who plays in Germany, has played in Spain, uh, Greece, been the top scorer in Holland. He was 20, 21 when he, when he left, so he was a late developer. I think you need to have all these different channels to, to, to get to the professional game. Mm -hmm. I, uh, and I, myself, I think our best players would have to leave at the age of 16, 17. Okay. In terms of the national team, and I, I do want to talk about the coaching structures that Iceland have in place. What was the lowest point in Iceland football? And was there a, a sliding doors moment that you can point to as this is the point where we decided to turn it around and think about developing it in a national way or in a, in a way that has developed it to what it is now? Good question. So there's... Um... Two things you need to consider. Um, I think I think people should be wary of um, of um, equating the success of the national team with all of the, the whole football structure because okay. the football structure when we're talking about the youth teams and the league that might be doing well, but the national team for some reason or other is not doing well. So um, there was a for the national team there was a quite a low moment. Probably, I can't remember exactly the year, but this is around the, the late 2000s, you know, 2007 to 2009, 10. Uh, we're losing to countries like 
Liechtenstein and, and Cyprus and you know countries that were normal normally not you know losing to mm-hmm. and um, and there was a, what was happening was probably the same thing that's happening now is that the the old guard that had been playing for quite a long time they were near in the end and uh, the the brilliant thing that the FA did was they took in last Lagerback at the moment when we had players like Gilles Sigurdsson, Aaron Gunnarsson, Colbert Sigurdsson, when they were all about the age of 22-22. And um, so getting in Lars, who comes from Sweden, had a, had a good success with the national teams. He, he, what everybody here says that he brought structure and he brought a, pro, he brought a professional attitude to the national team. So um, his guidance, his experience, this allowed the young guys to, you know, he actually didn't win, I think, his first six or seven games. He, he, he lost most of those games. Okay. But they were able to give these young guys like 20 national team games before they actually started to perform. And I think that's also important is that, you know, they need to have 20 national team games before you can actually start to demand results from these guys. Mm-hmm. So that was a lucky moment. And Iceland qualified for the finals of the Euros of 20, uh, for the U21 Euros uh, with these players in 2011. And they had this dilemma, should we take these players with the national team, full national team, or should we let them play in the finals for the, um, uh, for the U21s? And they actually took them to the finals instead of playing for the A national team. So they got major finals experience in Denmark back in 2011. And... Um, so, but it could have gone a different way because I don't know mm-hmm. if you know this, but uh, the the other guy that was in contention for being hired, apart from Lars Lauerbach, that was Roy Keane. All right. Yeah. So that was actually the big news back back then. It was that you know the FA was you know that Roy Keane was number one on on the wish list for the chairman of the FA, and um, you can imagine you know how how small things matter. You know how, how how small different things matter because mm-hmm. would Iceland have gone the same way with Roy Keane? I'm, 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 I don't think so, but uh, we can't be too sure. Yeah, I would I would have been surprised if they did, to be honest. Um, <laughs> what, what's very interesting there is that there is a lot of similarities in what is happening with Ireland at the minute because Stephen Kenny came in and he's trying to change the structure of Irish football in terms of the style and the way that they play. He also managed the under 21s who were playing in a major tournament. And now in the world cup qualifiers, there are players who are getting their chance at a young age with very few caps. And again, he also has not won a game in 10 games in his first 10 games in charge. And there's a lot of pressure on him at the minute, but it, it does take, a long time to develop these type of things. And I, I do think it's interesting that Iceland went through something similar. In terms of the path to the national team and path to professional football in Iceland, mm-hmm. underage structure, what is it like in Iceland? I, are they connected to, are the smaller clubs connected to the bigger clubs or how does it work? So it's actually a very different structure to any, any place else. You know, obviously we're a small country, mm-hmm. uh, only 350,000 people who live here. Uh, but every neighborhood, uh, every small town, they have a, have their own local club and they all have um, sports for kids, um, mainly football, basketball, handball. 
gymnastics. So Iceland is a sporting nation, you know, it's something that we do. So because the clubs are community clubs, I can take my kids to the local club or any club, be it, at the age of three. And they can start to, you know, come there once or twice a week. It's a great thing for socializing, you know, young kids, you know, mm -hmm. because they get to be a part of the community, put on a shirt, you know, run around, you know, with or without a ball. When they're six years old, they get into the system, so to speak, uh, and they can stay, everybody can stay until they're 19. There's no selection. We don't select players, uh, but we do have different tiers of teams. So, so uh, for example, the club that I work for, HK, and the former club I used to work for, Bredablik, both of them have about 1,000 players, uh, 1,000 to 1,500 players in all age groups. So if you're a U12 player, for example, then and and you're and you're part of a 1,000 person club, then in your age group you we, you might have a 100 players. Okay. Uh, they all have a team, but their team compete in different um, ability structures. And I think one of the best things about our system also is that you can then move up and down between those teams. So if you're doing well in the B team, then you can move up to the A team the next week and, uh, and vice versa. So mm -hmm. that's good flexibility in the structure. We train 11 months of the year, basically, you know, um, because we have the artificial pitches, we have the infrastructure. This, and, and this is the other key moment that, because you were asking about what happened uh, because you have to separate the national team and you have to separate the structure. In around 95 to 2000, we had two big, two major things happening, or actually three. One was that uh, the local communities, they all started to fund infrastructure. So, you know, artificial turfs, indoor pitches. Uh, every school has a small artificial turf next to it so kids can have great access accessibility to um, to football you know to the facilities when i was a kid you know I'm, I'm 45 when i was a kid we we had to shovel the gravel fields in in the winter to play <laughs> sounds like i'm ancient but you know it's it, it's not longer than that yeah but uh what they also did was that the local community started to offer vouchers so every kid who goes to sport, they, the local community will pay two vouchers to the tone of like 300 euros towards their football or their handball, their basketball, the music, you know, those kind of, the Boy Scouts, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever you want to do in your free time. So the taxpayer money is actually funding the young kids in, in okay. sport. The third thing that happened was that uh, the FA started to place a lot of emphasis on coach education and they made it really accessible so you know not many people had ufas or b's at the start of the century but you know i did my b in 2005 my a in 2009 and i think we have about three or four hundred ufa coaches now at the moment in in the country mm. and um, we have about probably around thousand people who have done the ufa b okay and i i read somewhere i'm not sure you can correct me if it's wrong from under 10s up, you're coached by a UEFA B licensed coach. Is that correct? Well, it, almost every 
kid, you know, be a three-year-old or 19-year-old, they're coached by a UEFA B or UEFA coach. Okay. And, 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 you know, a lot of, like, my kid goes to, three-year-old goes to training and, and the coach has a UEFA. And um, so there's a lot of, there's also a lot of flexibility for the coaches within the system. You know, coaches mm -hmm. can coach, you know, we have very good coaches who are maybe coached um, uh, U16, U19 teams, even in the, you know, Premier League for men's or women's. And they might all of a sudden be coaching uh, kids, six-year-olds yeah. or 10-year-olds, you know, or they might be coaching, you know, women at the other, you know, uh, the next year. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of flexibility in the system for coaches to get a different, get different kind of jobs. But it also means that just all of the kids do have a qualified coach. Mm. That's that's very interesting because obviously it does come with the caveat that you know Ireland has five million people versus three hundred fifty thousand people in Iceland, but in the Champions League, so Dundalk qualified for the champions of League of Ireland qualified for the Europa League and their coach couldn't be on the sideline because he didn't have a UEFA license and yeah. that has that happened years previously as well and that's the top tier of Irish football which is supposed to be the professional league of the country I think of course the Badgers don't you know they don't say everything, but they actually mean that you've gone through uh, here in Iceland, you've gone through seven levels of education where you have to both listen and learn and, you know, be exposed to different ideas, um, mm -hmm. discussions with your peers and with uh, people who are experienced. And uh, I think that's a good way. I, we don't have a system, you know, if, if I should no like um, central system that we adhere to if you want to be a coach you can sort of develop as your own coach we don't want to tell you you have to do everything this way or that way mm -hmm. you know there's some things that we want you to do like show up on time and uh, plan your session you we want to be able to um, you have to be able to explain to us why you chose that session what you're trying to do with your training and your coaching but uh, if you want to play like Barcelona, then do, do that way. Or if you want to play like, you know, not Barcelona, then, you know, <laughs> go that way. You know, yeah. it, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's quite flexible. We don't have that kind of a system that some countries maybe think they do. Mm -hmm. And just a couple more questions before we finish up. You mentioned the system that the players going, go into until they're 19. Would the national team have coaches and staff watching all of those people in that system to see potential who might come through to the national side or what is the um, sort of, what's the outcome of that system? What are they aiming for? So I think I saw some or just this Twitter, but you know, develop players and national teams select players. I think we have a very good communication here between coaches between teams between because because it's a small country with uh, the distances aren't long for most of us so if you see a player then if there's a player coming up then we know about him quite quite early him or her and also because we allow kids to stay in the system from 
we also get a lot of late developers that you know, we could always lose if we were doing selection. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the national team they start to they start to look at players around the age of 15. They bring them into and, and they bring in a lot of kids. You know they don't bring in a few. They bring in a lot of kids for camps and and like um, just to look at them. But the coaches are also the U17 top coaches. The the U 18 coaches they're they're out there also looking at games you know that's their job yeah yeah, yeah. before we finish up then the surge in Icelandic football obviously there's quite a lot happening but how much do you think is down to the sort of golden era of having the likes of Gilfie Sigurdsson who is clearly a world-class football footballer at any level um Part of your part of your national team, as opposed to a, a structure put in place at one point in time, and it leading to these players. Yeah, I, I, I myself, I, I'm not a big believer in that. You know, I think you need people working on you know some sort of structure. But if you sit down and plan, you know, we're going to be in the World Cup in ten years' time. You know, I don't think that's a good way to go about it. You have to in, instead. What happened here is that, you know, the fundamentals are strong. Uh, fundamentals meaning player development players have clubs to play in teams to play in coaches to offer that offer you know expert opinion and training mm-hmm. uh, you also have a lot of room for free play of course you're going to have players from this um, yes we did have a golden generation but again you know what if they had been coached by me instead of Lars Laga back then you know maybe they wouldn't have gone to Euros and they wouldn't have gone to the World Cup mm-hmm. So, so a lot of happy things coming together, not just, you know, single plan or anything like that, but anywhere you go in the world, I think if you find that the fundamentals of grassroots and, and availability for players to shine, then you're going to have a strong football core and football nation. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been thinking about this question for four years. You know, we thought 2016 was the top. Then 2018 came with the World Cup. That was a, another top. I think maybe this uh, team now they they could have started with um, they were victims of their own success because they if if there wasn't the Nations League and, and Iceland being in Group A if if that hadn't happened then they would have probably maybe done some rotation on on some of the old guard earlier but we do have players like Isak Johansson who plays in Sweden who is coveted by most clubs in Europe um, we have also 18 year old playing in Serie A we have uh, quite a few you know well, excellent kid now playing at Ajax Young you know only 17 years old so there's more players coming through uh, so this is why I want to separate the national team from the system you know the system is still delivering but now you know it's just a question of how the FA will, you know, how they will use the ingredients that they're being, that are being brought to the table, you know, how, mm-hmm. how are they going to prepare the meal, next meal? Yeah, yeah, that's, it seems like that is what's missing with Ireland at the minute is definitely the, the fundamentals in the background of building it from the ground up seems to be the issue. Before we finish up then, Dothy, new volcano in Iceland? How, yeah. how, how is it uh, reacted? We didn't get the same reaction to it as the previous one that left a, as a smoke cloud over Europe for a couple of weeks. How has it gone down? So it's a, we call it a tourist volcano. 
so it's uh, it's it's nobody's flying anyway. So it, it's and and it's not disturbing any any flights at all. But it's a uh, it's quite a beautiful one, small one, and uh, close to the city. So of course everybody's running over to the volcano <laughs> to get a, to get a selfie. And uh, and uh, if if you know any Icelanders on 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 any social media, then you will have had enough by the volcano by the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's actually quite nice. I just uh, we just uh, had a new baby boy, so I haven't been up there yet. So, but uh, as soon as I have the chance, we're gonna go, you know. But we're not gonna bring the bacon and eggs like some people have been doing. <laughs> How very Icelandic of them, just creating a yeah. volcano as a, a selfie uh, meaning. Anyway, Dothi, it's been absolutely brilliant chatting with you. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for calling. Team thirty three. This is OTB Sports Radio. And then welcome back. So we are turning away from international football, thank God you say. And I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Devine from Tifo Football because we're going to be chatting a little bit about what they do and the joy that they actually bring a lot of people on YouTube because they do a lot of really great stuff and a lot of really great videos. So Joe, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me and your kind comments. And also I am delighted to not be talking about international football. So very pleased to be here. Yeah, it seems to be collectively, no matter whether you're, you come from a, a country that play good international football or bad international football, the collective sigh of relief when it's over just seems to yeah. be a common theme now. It's weirdly uh, paced, isn't it? I think I was thinking about this the other day. I, I think there are very few things in life that are quite as uh, sort of harsh cutting between international football, sort of international breaks uh, within the regular season and then tournaments, because I'll be very excited come the summer uh, and uh, I won't care about anything more than I care about the Euros in June and July. But uh, now in March, I couldn't care less. It's a very strange thing. Yeah, it's such a weird thing that because if I were to say what my favorite tournament is in football, it would be the World Cup. But the World Cup qualifiers are just so dire and depressing to watch in terms of the excitement it brings, especially with no fans in the stadium. But do you, do you reckon that's down to how well the Premier League is marketed at the minute? Because I do get a feeling that even across Europe, the interest in the Premier League is so much bigger now and people fall on that. That is where they take their joy in football as opposed to supporting their their like their nations or their, their local clubs. Yeah, I think so. I, I wonder though whether it is, you know, if we think about what people actually enjoy engaging with when it comes to football a lot of it's transfers now and so mm. you think we we talk about the premier league as this massively exciting competition but when brighton play newcastle nobody cares so mm. i think you know really what people are talking about is the sort of top six and that is of course infused by the millions of pounds that are spent on on transfers and exciting players and it's a you know it's a place that can play host to some of the world's best footballers obviously true of the world cup too certainly not true of uh, every world cup qualifier but I think things that excite people are uh, team building, long-term projects, but also staying with something and staying engaged with it. Every time, for, for me, as, a, as an England fan, uh, when England play uh, sort of stuttered qualifiers or stuttered friendlies, I don't really feel like I have any kind of grasp of the project or players being brought in or not. Uh, and it's only really in those short bursts during a tournament where you can see the development of a team or you can really see how you think a, a team plays or feels. Whereas with uh, with club football, I don't know. I think it's it's um, it sort of encompasses more of the things that people are actually interested in. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, totally. So as I said in the intro, you're from TIFO Football, also working with The Athletic now because that's part of the, the big family. A, a lot of people will know what TIFO Football is and what you guys do, but for those who don't, what do you guys do? Uh, well, we make animated videos for a YouTube channel uh, and we talk about football, we tell football stories and we do a lot of uh, explanation of some of the more complicated things about football as well uh, in fairly bite-sized chunks, generally videos that are about six minutes long and tackle topics and subjects that we hope people are curious about or interested mm. in. Yeah, the animation is definitely one of the things that make TIFO football unique. In terms of your background in it, were you there from the get-go or did you join later? What was the crack with that? Yeah, so, I mean, TIFO used to be um, used to be called something else. Uh, it was called Umaxit Football, and it was a, a small company of people built around uh, an app, a predictor game for the Premier League. And I was brought on at that time to be the social media manager for Umaxit. Um, and to be honest, I sort of say this whenever anybody asks me, but the reason that we came up with the video ideas is because the job that I was paid full-time to do wasn't really a full-time job. Right. I felt a bit guilty about uh, taking the money and not not working that much. And so I tried to fill my time with um, uh, with different ideas and different projects. Uh, one of the things that we were working on was trying to develop content to sit around this app. And so there was an editorial site at the time, which was edited by a colleague of mine, Seb, who still works with, with TIFO now. Uh, and one of our ideas as well was just to experiment with video. And so we did that over a few months, tried a few things that were really rubbish and didn't work at all. And uh, then sort of stumbled upon the idea uh, of what TIFO is now. Those original videos were pretty ropey. I made them and I'm not an artist, Ender. So they uh, they look pretty ugly. In fact, if you go to if you go to the TIFO channel and you look back to the to the earliest video, I think was something to do with John Stones being underrated. So I'm looking pretty good this season, I should say. Uh, but I wrote it and made it and did the sort of scuffed voiceover with the terrible microphone I had at the time. Um, but you could see in that a kind of kernel of an idea. And I think that's, you know, what TIFO is now. Uh, yeah, that's that's that was our starting point. Um, uh, but it was, it was just sort of remarkably popular comparatively versus the other stuff that we had mm. produced to date. Um, and it was nice and it did feel a little bit unique. It felt, I mean, there are, you know, there were pre-existing sort of animated explainer channels on YouTube, but it didn't really feel that there was anything in in football or in sport that was, that was doing that. Um, so it seemed like a bit of a hole in the market. And as soon as we filled it, it was obvious that there, that it, that it, that it was, you know, there was a desire for, for this sort of video content. Um, and yeah, I'm delighted that people didn't like it as much as they do. Yeah. And pushing almost a million subscribers at this point on YouTube. So clearly people do like them in terms of the work that goes into them, because it is something that I've wondered when I was watching them from a six minute video, for example, from the sort of crux of an idea of what you want to cover to the animation, to the scripting, how long is, is one video taking to make? It takes quite a long time. So in my schedule at the moment, April is entirely booked. We've got some slots already booked in May as well. Uh, those ideas have already been created and uh, we probably have written most of the scripts already for the videos that are going to go out in April. So just for context, I'm not sure when this is being released, but we're recording at the very end of March. Um, 
and ordinarily if we were to take out all of the sort of rotoring time a script might take two or three days to write uh, there's you know we give over one day to the editing process prior to that that we might be discussing it for a day or so uh, and then when it gets to the illustrators it probably takes them or we give them roughly six days for a video that's six or seven minutes long um, and then probably an additional day or two after that for it to be prepared for YouTube and all of the SEO and all of the titling and everything mm -hmm. sitting around it. So really, we're talking about a kind of minimum of two working weeks. For one video. Cool. Yeah. So am I allowed to know what's coming in April? <laughs> sure. Let me, let me take a selection of some of the more interesting things. This is an exclusive, by the way, Ender. Yeah, I'm going to release uh, it straight away. <laughs> so we have an explainer on positional play, which is being written by Alex Stewart. Uh, we have something on the decline of David De Gea, which is being written by uh, Seb Stafford Bloor. And what else have we got in here? Oh, there's an explainer going out next Monday uh, about the new Champions League format, the so-called Swiss model, how mm. that works and what kind of changes will be implemented as of 2024. Uh, so just a, just a lettering of some examples there. Yeah, so one of the things that catches my eye there, and you just do a lot of them, one of the more recent ones is um, around tactics and the different breakdowns of each manager's uh, ideals and how that's developed over the last couple of years and previous teams that they worked with, etc. Are you guys just obsessives with that sort of thing? Or... Do you, you have people on your team that have studied actual coaching and have their coaching badges and understand tactics in that manner? Or are you all sort of self-taught? Obsessive amateurs, I would say. Um, so our main tactics writer is Alex Stewart, who was, he worked for the police before, I think. So I don't think he's, I don't think he has any of his football uh, badges. He hasn't formally studied it. But he just has a weird brain and watches football in a particular way um, and is able to s spot patterns uh, that I don't see. Um, we have a new person joining us to work in this space in May who I believe does have, um, or is at least on the way to getting some, some coaching badges. Uh, but it's something that I think... It's a useful place uh, place for us to be in. You know, with TIFO, we try to create stuff that uh, is is applicable for a, a range of different viewers. You know, the idea is that any video is accessible enough for somebody who is a starter to football or somebody in particular who's a starter to football tactics, but is also interesting enough and includes enough detail for people who, you know, know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think it, in a way it's, it sort of works that Alex writes them from the position that, that he has, you know, he's a, he's a football fan. So he understands what people want to hear about and what is particularly interesting. Um, and also he's a tactician, so he can explain that in, you know, in simple language. The other thing to say is that, you know, football tactics isn't a sort of easy win uh there's a lot related to tactics and coaching and training and whatever that is extremely boring and that nobody would ever care about even if they think they would you know so i think having somebody who sits across that uh, divide a little bit and is able to identify who's going to care <laughs> about some of the stuff you know yeah things that alex finds interesting we, we made a video about um tactical periodization the other day which is a sort of a uh, an all-encompassing approach to to training schedules and uh it's extremely dry it's interesting because it's uh, it's um Mourinho is its sort of most famous exponent and uh, there are other various other coaches like Andres Villas-Boas people like that who also use tactical periodization 
Uh, but if you get into the real nuts and bolts of it, it's dull because it's, you know, it's sort of explaining, you might say that you find a politician's job interesting, but if you followed them on a day-to-day basis, uh, I'm sure... 70% of it would be extremely boring in the same yeah. way that it would be with anybody's job, right? So have somebody who understands that divide and knows what's going to titillate people, I think um, that's that's very useful for us. I mean this in the nicest possible way because I'm one of, the, one of those people, but it seems like a large base of your audience would be made of absolute football nerds in the sense of it has a very football manager, um, Cup of Mondale, football magazines in their wardrobe that sort of those sort of people who follow like xg and all that analytical side as well and that that seems to be a growing audience in in many ways because i do think the games like fifa and football manager have opened people's sort of heads to that way of thinking and the fact that you don't just judge players on whether or not you think they're good enough you you judge them on much much more deeper things and there's a lot yeah. more work that goes into football now than just getting the guys out in the pitch and telling them to go express themselves yeah i think so and that's why i like the way that tifo is pitched because it embraces those sorts of ideas it discusses topics with those themes in mind but it attempts to do it in a way that makes it accessible for everybody. I think the football data and football tactics areas online are an interesting one because there are some people who work within that space that uh, create stuff which is specifically accessible and is supposed to be accessible for everybody to understand. There are other people who are a little bit more elitist and who I think try to be gatekeepers of the community, um, which is frustrating because, as you say, I think you're right. I think the way that younger people engage with the game, particularly as a result of FIFA and Football Manager and other video games too. They they understand it in a slightly different way to previous generations. And I like to think that, you know, part of TIFO's job is to make sure that that stuff is accessible, that it isn't always necessarily written in such exclusive language, uh, that the stuff that is made to sound extraordinarily complicated, which isn't really, uh, is explained with some nice cartoons so that everybody mm. can understand it. You know, that's the aim anyway. Yeah, because like I, I started a podcast recently talking about XG and performance and analytics for based upon around Celtic. And I'm, I'm not uh, a statistician. I'm not an analytical person, but the two guys that are on it are, are. So my job is to link them with the other guys that don't actually believe in it and I would have been very against that way of thinking for a long time because off the way like you said the elitist sort of language that they use and almost telling you that you're wrong because you don't have this blah 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 whereas the more that people understand it I I generally think that the more people will actually get into it. It already chimes with the way that people talk about football they just don't realize it you know Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the sort of long-term cliches um, describing a a sort of a mistake that a player or a couple of players might have made or a pass that's wrong. I remember thinking about um, Manchester United under Louis van Gaal uh, and the the, the very common criticism of the time was that there was too much sideways and and backwards passing, which was was very true. Uh, But the reality was there was a a, a supposed aim to uh, those patterns. And I think if supporters who are already identifying those problems uh, can apprise themselves of what the intended aims are supposed to be, suddenly just understand football in a slightly different way. 
but you're you're right about the the some of the attitude as well is uh, is quite frustrating. I think the the reality is that there are uh, numerous different ways or numerous different reasons to watch football, right? And not all of them include being entirely accurate uh, or understanding intent or understanding patterns. I think some people just enjoy narrative, and I'm one of those people. I watch football because it's funny or it's stupid or it's you know the old cliche it's a bit like a soap opera um that's why that's why i like it and i don't necessarily think i need uh the data or a tactical understanding to enjoy a particular game not that it wouldn't enhance my enjoyment of another game if that makes sense yeah yeah football is the greatest reality tv show on the planet because it's, <laughs> some of the things that happen and it's just laughable at times uh, just before we finish up then the athletic the monster that is the athletic how have you found the move to that I hope you mean monster in a, in a just large oh, and nice way. Right. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, yeah, it's been great. It's It's been a year pretty much now. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, I mean, I, I have a bad word to say about it. Like it, it's, um, it's just, uh, I suppose, enhanced everything that we do. It's, I mean, you know, we're all paid better. We have more money to spend on creating stuff. We get to work with some of the best journalists in the country and indeed some of the best journalists in the States as well. Um, there's always somebody around to ask a complicated question to. Uh, and there is, you know, despite the pandemic and despite everybody working from home at the moment, there's a nice sense of community as well. Um, we have very, very strongly aligned aims. Uh, and so it's been extremely easy, an easy transition and just felt like a kind of natural thing to do um it's been fantastic yeah it's uh, it sounds patronizing from someone who hosts a podcast that has a couple of thousand uh, people watching or listening to to say this but uh i i do really like your stuff so i i'd say keep up the good work over the next couple of months uh joe devine from tifo football and the athletic thanks for joining me today thanks and i appreciate it team 33 this is OTB Sports Radio. Right, welcome back. So that is all we have time for on this week's Team 33. Thanks to you as ever for listening. If you want to listen back to any of that podcast or any of the Team 33 podcasts, you can get it in the OTB Podcast Network available now in the OTB Sports app. You can subscribe there and get notified every single time a Team 33 episode goes live. You can follow us on Twitter at Team 33. That's all spelled out in words or you can catch us on all of the Off The Ball channels as well. If you want to read that Stephen Kenny piece, you can get that on the O2B Sports website as well. Just give it a read. Let me know what you think. You can follow me at Endacall on Twitter as well if you want to get in touch about anything that you want to talk about on the show. We'll be back again same time, same place next week. But until then, take away Johan.